Hello and welcome to the summer series of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. I hope you and your family are having a super fun time over the Christmas break. The summer series is where I'll be diving into the podcast vault and picking out some of the older episodes that I think you'll love if you're a newer listener to the podcast. And if you've been listening over the years, then I know these are the episodes you'll enjoy revisiting. To kick us off last week, we had the chat about switching off and being more present with Angela Lockwood. This week, I bring you a conversation I had with a very special friend of mine, Tom Glafke, who I met while my family and I were house-sitting a log cabin in the north woods of Wisconsin a couple of years back. I loved learning from Tom's stories and his deliberate yet simple ways. Tom has lived a life with contentment, happiness, and love. He has this beautiful, optimistic personality that invites you along for the ride. One of the reasons I wanted to include this conversation in the summer series is the connection Tom makes between aliveness and struggle. As he says, it is in the struggle where the excitement is. It is something that I personally think a lot about when things might not be going the way I had planned or I feel like I'm in the middle of struggling with something. I think about this conversation with Tom And that it is in the struggle that I truly feel alive, that I'm learning and growing. Tom has helped me see the beauty in the struggle. Tom has lived a deliberate life, gained wisdom that only time and experience teaches. He is a lover of nature and a beautiful human and friend. I hope you enjoy this summer series conversation with Tom Glafke. Hey, Tom, how are you? Hi, Mike. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, It's lovely to hear your voice and to see you as well. And whereabouts in this beautiful world are you today? I'm sitting in my log home on the shores of Lower Clam Lake in uh, Sawyer County, which is uh, part of the Shawamigan National Forest in uh, the northwest corner of the state of Wisconsin, USA. Well, you say that so much better than I do when I'm trying to (laughs) describe that beautiful part of the world. But it was actually in Clam Lake's post office from memory that you and I first met. You know, I'd been in the town for approximately two months, I think. And in a town of 37 people, I thought I had met everyone. But you came in and my daughter Andy just starts holding your hand and swinging off your arm. And, you know, we start up this conversation and I'm telling you how my family and I, are, we packed, donated or sold everything we owned in Australia. And we're attempting uh, to house it our way through North America for a year. And you were like, but how did you end up in Little Clam Lake? Right, exactly. This is like nowhere, man. This is off the charts, off the map. I mean, there were even towns in Alaska that we stayed in that were more populated, more well-known uh, than our tiny little hamlet of Clam Lake. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a beautiful story, though, with Andy. I had come into the post office, if you don't mind my telling that story just briefly from my side, um, and it's a man standing at the counter paying no attention to this little girl and a fellow Clam Laker and myself. And the little girl just hugs me and holds me. And I'm like, 
oh, is this your granddaughter? And she says, no, I assumed it was your granddaughter. And we're looking around like, whose child is this? It's obviously not the man at the counter. He's not paying any attention. And lo and behold, it was Andy, your little precious daughter. It was such a great special meeting. It was fun. And then I invited you spontaneously to come to our cabin. And of course, you you did as you're so open-minded about things and experiences. Uh, and, and that's it. You know, you and I start up that conversation and you're like, oh, do you want to come to my cabin? And so Andy and I hop in the car and we follow this man that we've never met before into the woods um, to see his log cabin. And like saying those words out loud is a little odd, but it was such a beautiful moment. And I guess you and I had like this instant connection internally that was really initiated by Andy. Absolutely. And I felt that right away. I felt you were a person that shared the same spirit or same soul that I do and that the people that I'm comfortable around does share. You know, it doesn't matter the age of the person. It just matters their open mindedness or their openness to new experiences. And I think there was something that you said that just really clicked in my head at this point in time in history when everybody's afraid of this and that. You were like, no, man, 98% of the people are all good. It's, it's all good. So that clicked with me. No, I agree. I think that if you believe that people are good, you actually start attracting the good people around you. Absolutely. Absolutely, I believe that. And I, um, you know, obviously you and I had, uh, we developed a great friendship uh, after that. And I remember emailing you um, now that I'm back in Australia and saying, hey, Tom, I'd, I'd love to have you on the podcast <laughs> And you said something along the lines of like, are you sure you want to interview me? My, my life is ordinary by many people's standards. And I had to hook you up to Skype and all that kind of stuff, which you, you have, you know, picked up quite perfectly. But like, I really wanted to interview you today as I learned so much from the stories you told me as we shared dinner with each other a number of times. And we, sit back, we uh, sipped back on some uh, homemade Japanese plum wine, which uh, you and I need to talk about offline. Oh. <laughs> but, <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, uh, it was delicious. But I find that there is something beautiful about the simplicity of your extraordinary life and the deliberateness in which the way you've chosen to live like, do you feel that you have lived life deliberately? Absolutely, Mike. I think that's uh, real important to me, and I've stressed it now with my sons as well, that uh, chasing money is not the goal. Um, happiness, true happiness, you know, inner inner being, inner soul happiness is the, is the goal that we're all after and trying to achieve. And if Chasing money is makes some people happy. I, I, I'm not knocking that. It's just for myself. Uh, being in the woods, being in solitude and silence uh, amongst the critters uh, with family members is, is really, really, really important. And like you, t- you talk about that, that inner soul and happiness to happiness, you know, without, without trying to get too deep too soon, like what are some of the, what are some of the, I guess, elements that you've been able to, to kind of put into your life to generate that? Well, it's interesting. Early on, I had uh, literally like as preteen, 12 years old, for school book report, uh, the teacher uh, pulled me out into the hallway because I had read a book 
by Henry David Thoreau called Walden Pond, Life in the Woods. Uh, it had been recommended to me by an adult friend of the family who knew my, my inclination towards nature and, and wild things. And uh, she pulled me into the hallway and I thought I was in all sorts of trouble. And she said, did you really read this book? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Now I understand as an older person why she said that because I didn't understand philosophy or, or the social ramifications of what he was talking about. But what I saw at a 12, 13 year old was that he was observing nature and, and speaking about the squirrel hiding its nuts or the, the red ant versus the black ant colony warring. So it was just at that level that uh, uh, I understood things. Well, that kind of springboarded my whole life into, I enjoyed that so much. I also started to read other books about nature and stuff by other, and it helped that my dad's family had a home on a farm in uh, Michigan. So we were in the woods, on the water, you know, quite at an early age and very much enjoyed that. Those are my special moments when I was a young man. And so do you feel that that love of nature and that connection with nature has, has been with you from such a, a young age? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was really hard because I grew up in Chicago at the time, the second largest city in the United States, um, surrounded by concrete, cars, sirens. You know, um, I there is a dichotomy in me in that I really enjoy that urban life experience, the theater, the music, the, the concerts and so on. But the, I'm really more comfortable at home in the woods, as you can see, sitting here you know, the shores of Upper Lower Clam Lake, you know. So, yeah, it's it's followed me my whole life. It was a dilemma when I chose my career, how I would get into the woods, you know, and I thought, well, maybe it would only be vacations or holidays or things of that sort. And I, that kind of made me a little bit sad, you know, so I tried to find a way to work it more into my life. And you, and you talk about that, that career, and so I guess take me back to, Tom, the artist in his early 20s. Yeah, I, I was, I lived, breathed, slept, ate art. I mean, I really did. It was till uh, a 31 year old, that was my profession. And by artist, I mean, I painted pictures, did drawings, and exhibit them in, in galleries, um, mostly in the Chicagoland area but with the ambition and hopes to get to New York City, you know, the mecca of, of the art world. So I did take several trips out there um, in the hopes of becoming this professional artist. And, and so you, you said that you were doing that until the age of 31. Why did you stop? What, what, what made your, your, I guess, your life's course change a little bit? The birth of our oldest son. That's really what did it. You know, Andrew came along and the reality was I couldn't, you know, I couldn't make a living just painting pictures and doing drawings and selling them, which I was mildly successful at doing, but I would only generate enough income to pay for my supplies in our apartment. And if I wanted the life that my wife also wanted of, you know, the home and, and the child, you know. It, I needed to do something different. And it was at that point I was exhibiting at a gallery in Chicago that a more pragmatic cousin came up to me during my exhibit 
and said, well, now what are you going to do? You know, I'm thinking I'm going to do this the rest of my life. He's thinking more pragmatically. You need to put bread and butter on the table. How are you going to do that selling this piece at 800 bucks that took you a month to create when you have a child on the way? Well, it was, I'm, I'm searching for the word. I don't want to say magical or godsend, but he suggested to me that I take this talent I have of being able to paint pictures and approach the billboard companies in town, which at that time in history, billboards were still hand painted by artists such as myself. You would climb up 60, 80, 90 feet in the air on a wall or on a billboard, and you would paint the picture of the Marlboro Man to sell cigarettes or, or Seagram 7 ice poured over you know, ice cubes in a glass, uh, that kind of thing. So with his advice, I did take my portfolio, um, went to one of the major billboard companies in the nation at the time and showed them my work and they were interested but I didn't have any experience. So it was the case of, you know, you have a lot of talent, but you don't have the experience, get experience, and then we'll hire you. So that circle. And, and just to reiterate there, when you told me that you painted billboards, I didn't really understand what you meant until your beautiful wife, Linda, actually sent me like this short movie that was about that, that art form, which I will link to the show notes, uh, in the show notes. But it, it is actually amazing. You're, you're drawing this product, this, this advertising, on the side of a building, such large-scale form. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. I mean, I had a, my work was an adventure. You know, it really was a lot of fun getting 30 stories up in the air or 10 stories up in the air in all of the elements in February in Chicago when it's 20 degrees out or in August in Chicago when it's 102 degrees out. It was a trip. It was a lot of fun. Um, it did require me overcoming fears and Andrew kind of was the instigation for that. You know, I had this son, I had this baby, I, I had this talent and I wanted to earn money with the talent I had and it required my just biting the bullet, so to speak, climbing up in the air and, and doing this work. It was really cool. And you talk about overcoming fears there and, and biting the bullet. Is, is that really how you overcome a lot of the fears in your life? Absolutely. I think you just have to face them. I think you just say, what is the worst that could happen? I know I was impressed when you and Inga said, well, if we sell our furniture, you know, move to America for a year, what is the worst case scenario? And I think we all have to kind of go into our dark space, what we fear the most, and understand that that's not all that bad. If that's the worst case scenario, I can live with that and do that. I am a big risk taker from that standpoint. And, you know, you talk about worst case scenarios, and, and that's exactly what I love doing, kind of bringing that, that future fear, because I guess that's really all the future is, are these potential things that possibly could happen, and bringing those fears into the, into the present day and kind of dealing with them. But has any worst thing that could happen ever really happened? No, never. You know, unexpected things happened, 
but you just kind of flip those unexpected things into positive things just from your personality or your mindset or whatever. It's like, oh, I didn't plan on it going that way, but wow, this is cool. I can see, you know, where this might lead to something positive as well. And and you think about that, like talking about thinking about the positive and that mindset, is that something that you have developed over the years or is that something that was really just came with you when you popped out into the world? I, I believe it came with me when I popped out into the world. You know, I have friends that we've shared the same exact experiences and they've seen it in an entirely different light than I did. Not to say it was negative, but it slanted towards negative versus I always saw the positive or, or put a positive spin almost on every situation I've, I've encountered in life. And uh, you mentioned before about being in the woods and, and having um, your, your dad had, had that property where you were in the farms and stuff. And you've got your log cabin, which is a traditional Norwegian log cabin that you've restored and, and improved over the years. But take me back and tell me the story about how you, you ended up in the woods and how you have designed your life in a way where you were able to spend more than just holidays in the woods. Well, it came about with, I did start a career as a college university level instructor. And the hope was we had, Linda and I had bought this place at 28 years old before we had a reliable car, before we had a, a primary home in the city, much to the chagrin of both of our parents, you know, but we bought this place to certify that we would always have a place in the woods because back then in the in the mid 70s it was the fear was everything will be paved in concrete sooner rather than later if you want to live that lifestyle you really need to get into the woods or find property there now and do that kind of thing so that was in the back of my mind somewhat to do that um, but as i started to say i began a career as a professor that was the goal so i would work eight and a half, nine months, and then we could spend three months up here during the, you know, during the off, off, uh, off season, off, off school year. Um, that didn't pan out. It didn't work out that way. That's when I had the exhibit in Chicago that the cousin then suggested might go on the route of painting pictures on billboards. But we had this, we escaped here on weekends and holidays, but for many, many years, many years, it was only weekends and holidays that we got to be here. But it was really interesting because when I met you and there were some other people in Clam Lake and especially in, in those kind of areas that might have a city home, like their main home and then their, their cabin is, and they call it like their holiday home. But you actually felt more at home in the woods and you said, no, this is my home. I go in the city is my second home. Yeah, indeed. This is where my heart and soul is at. This, And that has always been the case. We have this very nice uh, Milwaukee area home. Um, yeah, eloquent, but this is where my heart and soul is. And 
your boys, you've got two boys that, that are in their, their 30s, if I'm not mistaken. And the way of life and, and what you've instilled in them is, has definitely, I guess, mirrored your life to some degree because they actually both bought the log cabin in the neighboring property to you when it, when it came on sale for the first time in, in however many decades. Yeah, absolutely. They they are kindred spirits to you and to I. They love their time in the woods and being in nature and stuff like that. Um, to the point, and I do want to bring this up, that my oldest son, Andrew, I call him Drew, uh, quit his job back in 2014 um, to hike the Appalachian Trail, to do the 3,500 kilometers, to 22, what is it, 2,200 miles over the length of five months, he quit a very well-paying art directorship at a major agency in the South um, to, to go out into the woods and to walk for that five to six months, as one of your other podcast uh, interviewers had. Yeah, no, I, which was Tasha. She, she did the Appalachian Trail as well. And I guess like on that point, like what was that like as a father when you're your son says, "Hey, I'm going to pack it all in, and uh, you know, give this give this uh, this hiking thing a go." It was nerve wracking. I wrote a little essay which I shared on Facebook because I said, "I guess we're to blame for this because we've instilled in him this love of nature that money is only secondary and not your primary goal in life, and you should have fun and enjoy." Uh, those things that you would absolutely love to do. But with that said, we made sure he had a safety net. He had a bank account. And then the thought was, he's solo. He's not doing it with a companion. My thoughts were, okay, I'm comfortable doing that, but this is my child. I don't, I'm a little bit nervous about him doing it. And I had to reassure myself, he's well-trained in woodsmanship. He's 30 years old at this point, I believe. Let's see, let me do the math here. Uh, 2014, so he would have been 33, and I thought, you know, he can do this. He, he's very good at uh, woodsmanship and, and sleep alone. So uh, he went off. His mother and I did join him on some lengthy hikes of about 161 kilometers in the states of Massachusetts, um, in the states of uh, North Carolina. We joined him around Max Patch for a stretch. And uh, the hardest stretch, we joined him in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which was really a hard climb and a difficult uh, hike. And you spoke there about instilling, you know, some big things, bringing up the boys about love of nature and that money is secondary. Are there any stories or any elements that kind of come to mind about how you actually went about doing that? I'm not quite sure I understand, Mike. Doing what? Like bringing up your boys to, to love nature and to actually, you know, not just kind of chase the money. Was that, I guess, just something because you and Linda live that way and they've just modeled that off you? Or is that something that you were really conscious about instilling in them? I, I believe it was just something uh, intuitive that they, that they learned just from being with their mother and I, and, and the focus of our dinner conversations, it was, you know, it was, we did own our own business. So I'm not saying, you know, you, you can uh, get by without earning a living. 
you know, especially in the case of my second son has four little daughters, my, my four beautiful granddaughters, you know, you have to work, you have to put money on the table, but we just made sure that they understood money wasn't, it was necessary, as my dad said to me, a necessary evil, but it shouldn't be the focal point of your life. And I think they got that just from being around us, being up here in the woods ever since they were born, um, those kind of family discussions, it wasn't something that we said, oh, you should, life is either A or B and you need to follow the B path. It was never that, the, the two always kind of merge, but with the emphasis or the focus really on nature and being in the woods. Oh, beautiful. You, um, you sent me something a few months back, and it was a quote from Gordon McQueen's book, Stories of the Old Duck Hunters, and it read, Protect me from comfort, for its convenience led to complacency. Save me from those who would save me from myself, for to struggle is to achieve, for to struggle is to live. And like I go back to that phrase time and time again. I think it's so beautiful. But can you describe the beauty of struggle in your life? Yeah, it's it's it doesn't seem like a struggle when you're doing it. I, you know, in hindsight, you say, "Wow, I made things really hard on myself. I could have chosen an easier path. I could have conformed to the standards of a certain profession and just gone with that." But it was. You know, it was the seeking of the adventure that uh, I guess just kind of drove us. I never really gave it a lot of thought. And even in preparation for this conversation between us, I didn't know what you would ask or how I would answer or respond to your questions. But we did consciously choose to make nature a part of our life, to have this home, a log home, traditional log home, as you pointed out, in the North Woods. And from that, so much else has, has, you know, had set motion, has set in motion. And what do you think you've, you've learned from those times of struggle? It's in the struggle that the excitement is, you know. It seems at those moments when you're... Uh, really struggling to get up those boulders in, in the White Mountains on the AT in New Hampshire, that you doing it, it's like, oh, gosh, why did I subject myself to this? I'm in my mid-60s. My wife, you know, this five-foot-tall Asian woman going over boulders that were essentially much larger than her and doing it. But it's in it's the aftermath, I guess, that you say, Wow, that was awesome. That was really good. I feel so much more alive. I feel so much better about who I am, you know, because we have done that. I never was the person that was going to stay in a job for 30 years like my dad did. And I totally respect that, you know, a carpenter his whole life um, where you were your plans were to draw a pension, you know, so you were living for that 30 years out when you would then collect this pension so you could start the rest of your life doing the things you wanted to do on this money that you had put aside in a nest egg through your pension, through your through your place of work. I never w wanted to do that. That I don't know how a better way to say that. 
And that's like, I 100% agree with that. And I, I feel that that option for my generation and generations below me isn't even there anymore, except that's kind of really how the majority of society still live. Do you kind of, and I guess no one knows what's going to happen in the future, but do you see that there's going to be some potential issues in the future when people kind of get to that age with their hand out going, hold on, what happened here? That's, I guess that's a real concern, you know, that people don't put aside for the future. There is, that's, there's a necessary evil, to use the expression of my dad, and needing to do that. Um, you don't want to have to rely on friends, family, society, government to support you. But if you can live your life without working towards a pension, I guess, Maybe, I don't know if I'm conveying this correctly or accurately enough that I, I did work. I worked at my own business very hard for decades and I put away money so that in the future we could live here in the woods comfortably without concerns. But with that said, I also live so simply that I think Thoreau also said I'm a rich man because I want so little. I really don't have a lot of needs at this point in life. Would it be nice to jump a cruise ship and go to Hawaii? Yes, it absolutely would. Will I do that some point in time in my life? I hope to. But if I don't, I find the adventure in the Shawamgan National Forest. Just last night, I'm out on the trail um, late in the afternoon just walking through the woods, waiting for sundown, not waiting for it, but just enjoying that whole ambiance of the woods as, as nightfall comes. And here there's this noise in the in the leaves rustling. And I'm like, oh, is it a grouse? Is it is it an elk or something sneaking up behind me or whatever? And I see this little white spot. And I'm like, what what is that? And next I see white and brown. And here it was a snowshoe hare which are not that common anymore up here. A, a long time ago, there were, they had been, but they're not that common. But it was in transition from its winter coat from, to its summer coat, so it was both brown and white. And it was just beautiful. My point here being that I get so much thrill out of seeing that snowshoe hare in my forest behind my house as the sun's coming down and streaming through the pine forest than I would if I was, you know, maybe in a waterfalls in Hawaii. You know, I'm, you know I want to go to that waterfalls in Hawaii. I do. Don't get me wrong. I want to see Shiranka and I want to go to Machu Picchu. But I get so much joy from these really simple moments in life. It really, it really does. You talk about wanting to go to those waterfalls in Hawaii, but when you actually did have the choice to go on an adventure. And I must say, you did this adventure when you were still in your mid-60s. This is not something that you and your wife, Linda, did when you were young. But when you had that opportunity, you actually chose to spend, uh, you can tell me how many, how many weeks or days it was, but you time in the deep woods of Alaska. Can you tell me that story, Tom, about why you wanted to do it, the preparation for that, and some of the, the, the key elements of that journey? Yeah, that was that was a life dream, and it was a life changer, and I don't say that lightly. Um, 
I guess our character is such that we are not the people that want to go to a five-star resort and drink Manhattans at five o'clock at night before a nice steak dinner. Nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, that's just not who we are. And so when we came to the notion that we had time this year to spend nine weeks um, in Alaska, we thought about how we would do it, um, how we would manage for that length of time, um, both in terms of uh, just bathing and eating and and uh, money was not that much of a concern, but just the logistics of how we would do that trip for that length of time. And once again, it, it just came automatic to us to put our backpacks on, our sleeping roll in the backpack, our tent in the backpack, and take off and go into the back bush and into the back country of, of Alaska. When we came out, we were in the local bars with the people, much as you did here in Clam Lake. And we ate at the local cafes, um, got suggestions on um, our, one of our greatest adventures was because we happened to sleep in a, a, a home of somebody that we met, not unlike you guys. Um, and I said to him, Richard, you're a native Alaskan. If you had time off, give me ideas of your three greatest adventures, what it is you would do. And then we just started to do those kinds of things. But yeah, my wife, God bless her, mid-60s. We, uh, we slept in tents on the ground in the back bush and in the back country of Alaska amongst the grizzlies, amongst the moose, amongst the wolves. It was an awesome, awesome experience. Yes, indeed. And you talk about living amongst the grizzlies there. Um, do you mind telling me your bear story? Okay, the bear story. I have several, but I know the one you're referring to. We had to apply for a permit to go into the back country of Denali. Beautiful country. However you see it, see it. If you see it from a bus, if you see it from a tour bus, if you see it from a bicycle, however you see it, make sure you get to Denali and see it. It is an awesome uh, part of the world. Anywho, um, you had to apply for a permit to go into the back country of Denali. And in our case, it was a two-day um, um, preparation because you had to uh, be interviewed by a ranger, you had to watch a movie, you had to take a test, and you had to um, uh, answer questions. I think I'm repeating myself there. But it was like a four-step process, and they only had time to do two of the four steps the first night and then resume the next morning with two. Well, kind of a funny side note to that story, there were 12 people or so in this class as we began, most of them, all of them, not most of them, all of them much younger than us, more close to the age of you and Inga. And as the rangers are talking about when you see a bear, here's what you should do, or first asking us what we would do and then telling us what we should do, how we should store our food, how we should set up the food 100 yards, from the tent, which is 100 yards from your cooking area, a triangle of 100 yards in between so as not to attract bears to your, to your sleeping quarters at night. Well, we did the two steps the night before. The next morning, there were only like four people of the original 12 because they all, I, you could hear the young ladies and guys saying, holy crap, I, 
I don't want to encounter a bear. I don't, I'm, I'm okay seeing it from a bus or whatever. I don't want to encounter a bear. Well, Linda and I were either too stupid or naive to uh, continue with the course, got our permit, and then go off. We're, set, we're going on the, the bus in, in, the, in the park. Um, it's a 90-mile or thereabouts, 89-mile uh, gravel road into the park on this bus. We happen to take a camper's bus because it accommodates your gear more. Anyhow, long story short, we're back in the brush, and it's our second or third day. We're staying to the glacial rivers because they're open versus being in the bush because we did not want to surprise a bear or be surprised by a bear in close quarters back in the bush. So we're out in the open. It kind of looks tundra-like. And on the third morning, I'm getting up and I'm collecting some twigs to make a tiny fire for a, uh, a, a cup of tea. And I look up and not that far away with no trees between us is this massive grizzly. I'm like, oh my Lord, now what? You know, I'd hoped for this ever since I was a young kid. You know, this is, what are you going to do when you face this animal? And I was that macho guy, oh, I'll stand up to him and, you know. But here I am now in my mid-60s with my wife and I thought to myself, oh Lord, I have put her in a precarious position. I have really jeopardized her for my dream, you know, my hopes. And I then did become very nervous. So I pull her out of the tent and say, Linda, there's a bear. Well, she is like, oh, is that cool? That's awesome. So she's like getting the camera ready to take pictures of this bear. And I'm like, no, Linda, we've got to back off. This bear is approaching us. He's feeding towards us. And there's no, no obstacles in between us. So had he decided to charge or she, um, she could have closed that gap in under 10 seconds in which point in time your bear spray, all of your preparation really doesn't do you a lot of good. So it is the story of a lifetime, but it was a moment of sheer fear, but that's the moment where you're, you know, you're just totally alive because now you're, you, all your skills kick in, you're, you're put, you know, it, just, it was just cool. It was just really cool. Wow. I, I, yeah, I don't know what, how cool I would be <laughs> during that, but <laughs> it would be so beautiful to see, you know, those those animals in that in that scenario. Like I was fortunate enough in our trip over um, in Clam Lake, we saw a bear in the wild, uh, a black bear, and then also in Yellowstone National Park, we were able to see some some bears. But there was kind of a bit of a safety element. Um, me being in a car <laughs> when when I was yeah, able to see those. <laughs> now, mate, I've I've written down some questions and I've I've titled these life lessons and I'm I'm just gonna like roll them off and you can kind of answer them quickly or you can go in depth wh whatever you'd like like to do. But I'm I'm I just I just want to get those pearly nuggets, well, more of those pearly nuggets out of your head. And what has been your biggest surprise? In life my biggest surprise uh, I'm really stumbling to answer that one I don't know come back to that one let me think about that for a minute okay all right not a problem so like one of the things that really draws me to you is you know your your happiness and, and the way that you're so loving and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier but what do you think the ingredients of a life 
full of love and happiness are and, and like what have been the key drivers in the way that you've lived your life? Just to see people in a positive light, just to, you know, um, love is the answer. I mean, I, that's a cliche, but it, it's, it's just to direct your whole life with love towards others. Yeah, I don't know how else to say that. You know, just you see the good in everything, even you focus on the good, even amongst, you know, bad or worst case, bad case scenarios. I'm saying that very awkwardly. But, yeah, just focus on positivity, focus on on and finding good in people and, and directing your whole life with love towards everything, towards love, towards people, towards nature. Yes. What do you wish you knew in your mid 30s that you know now? I guess I wish I knew that you don't have to worry, you know, that if you pursue your dreams with all of your heart, if you just go with confidence in in the direction of your dreams, that they will become a reality, that those things that you target or strive for will become your reality. Beautiful. And my final one for here is, if you could instantly change one thing in your life or in the world tomorrow, what would it be, big or small? In this environment right now with our U.S. political elections, that's really a loaded question, and I don't want to get political. But again, it, it, it focuses on Perceiving the world in, in, a, in a positive manner, seeing the connectivity between all of us um, in, in terms of color, race, religions, ethnic, whatever, you know, seeing how we are connected and how we are more alike than how we are apart. And of course, our elections seem to be focusing on, on just the opposite of that, which is a real turnoff for me. And the surprise, the surprise in life, I got it. I am surprised and amazed to this day that my wife, Linda, not only loves me, but that she likes me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she is a beautiful woman, and you are very likable and lovable. I can definitely say that, Tom. Um, And I have one. You're too kind. Uh, thanks, mate. I have one final question, and it, and it is one that I do ask all my guests, and I, I'm sure knowing you, you've probably got something a little bit prepared. But can you please describe your perfect day for me? Yeah, and this is really hard because we've touched on it a little bit. I so enjoy my time with my wife and with my sons and their families. Um, we've had adventures in the Boundary Waters and in, in where it's canoe accessible only. That, that, that's the land of lakes between Canada and Minnesota primarily. We've had wonderful adventures in, in the Okefenokee swamps in southern Georgia and, and in the Everglades going off trail um, with canoe uh, down in Florida. We've, we've hiked the Appalachian Trail together. So it's really hard because I've had these special moments in my life with my family and done amazing and, and awesome things. But the moment that I am myself, that I am truly the happiest, and I discussed this a little bit with my son Matthew yesterday, knowing you'd asked the question, um, 
when you're with somebody else, even somebody that you know intimately and that loves you, you still are a little bit different because you have to live up to how you perceive them to perceive you, if you know what I mean, or, or, or live up to their expectations of you as they perceive you. And you're, you, yes, you are comfortable, you, you are you, you're their husband, their father, whatever. But when I am most comfortable, I put the back, backpack on my back or the canoe over my head and I walk down some backwoods trail to get into a backwoods lake to sit in the water on, in my canoe um, all alone. Alone in the woods is probably my most exhilarating time. And that, that's really interesting for you to say because as much as you love being alone and you, and you did touch on this, like you're very much a people person, you know, that's why I love you so much because I enjoy being around you so much. So it's, it's really interesting that you have this, this love of, you know, being alone, but then you also have this, this love of humanity and, and everybody in it. That is a dichotomy, isn't it? I still have never figured that out. You know, I guess my um, I'm not one to believe in the celestial signs, but my sign is Gemini, which is the twin. So a dual personality. I really do love people. I think that comes through when I meet people. I really do enjoy my time um, commiserating with people and the camaraderie of, you know, having a beer, watching a, a ball game or whatever. But then I need to know that eventually I'm going to say goodbye, put my backpack on, get in my canoe or whatever, and be off in the woods at least an equal amount of time, if not, you know, 70-30, time alone versus time with people. I uh, hope that answers the question. Most definitely, mate, most definitely. And Tom, I just want to thank you for like sharing your story and and all those lessons, those life lessons, and and all your little bits of wisdom, you know, I thoroughly miss you, and it's so great that technology allows us to to connect this way, and and this podcast allows your your lessons to 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 be taught to so many people. Um, I will link to your Facebook page if people do want to find out a little bit more about you. And people can also email me directly at mike at liveimmediately.com and I will definitely put you in contact with Tom. And I'll make sure that all the links and everything that we've spoken about are in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. But before we, we go, Tom, is there anything that I've left out? Is there anything that you'd uh, like to say? Any little bits of wisdom that are low-hanging fruit there. No, I don't think so, Mike. You've covered a lot, and I hope I haven't uh, come across as knowing it all because certainly I don't have answers for anybody else. Um, I know what works for me and what works for me and my wife and our family. It certainly isn't a Bible by which to live or instruction manual on how to conduct your life. Um, it works for me, and that's all I can say. Oh, thanks heaps, mate. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately.
that was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.